I have called up in all my years of sorcery, no ominous and gibbous. And the Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. And this week we'll be covering A Voyage to Svanamoe. How are we saying it? Svanamo? Svanamoe? I think, I, think. I think you have to say the E like Chloe. Svanamoe. Svanamoe. Yeah. Svanamoe. Say it like you've been there. Svanamoe. A Voyage to Svanamoe. You wouldn't have been there, though. <laughs> uh, hey, look, don't tell me my own biography, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, this story first appeared in the August 1931 issue of Weird Tales, alongside Whisper in the Darkness, as well as stories by Otis Adelbert Klein, Loretta G. Burrow, Stella G.S. Perry, and others. I just noted that there were, I think, an abnormal number of women in that issue of Weird Tales. I don't know if that actually is abnormal, but it's abnormal for the ones that, that I've noted in doing the podcast, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it's true. I have no idea what Loretta G. Burroughs' writing was like, or Stella G.S. Perry's. And for anybody that's keeping track, this uh, story was published three months after the first Averone story, Rendezvous and Averone, which appeared earlier in, in 1931. Wait, Rendezvous and Averone is the um, the end of the story. Oh, yeah, I'm wrong, actually. It would be the second Averone story. I think it is Rendezvous. This is why you keep me on staff. It is, yeah. <laughs> because I'm constantly screwing up. <laughs> <laughs> I blame Wikipedia. <laughs> this wasn't even Wikipedia, though. This was me just not checking my own podcast notes. <laughs> <laughs> there are many marvelous tales, untold, unwritten, never to be recorded or remembered, lost beyond all divining and all imagining, that sleep in the double silence of far recessive time and space. The Chronicles of Saturn the archives of the moon in its prime, the legends of Antilia and Moiria, these are full of an unsurmised or forgotten wonder, and strange are the multitudinous tales withheld by the light years of Polaris and the galaxy. But none is stranger, none more marvelous, than the tale of Hotar and Evadon, and their voyage to the planet Sphanomoe from the last isle of foundering Atlantis. Hearken, for I alone shall tell the story, who came in a dream to the changeless center where the past and future are always contemporary with the present, and saw the veritable happening thereof, and waking, gave it words. That's like the craziest frame story that I think I've ever encountered. Yeah. Hey, I dreamt of something. <laughs> in real time. And yeah, and let me tell you about it. It's just like the Chronicles of the Moon in its prime. I, I love it. I, I just, I love how it it like just descends into um like it, it like pure poeticism. Like who yeah. came in a dream to the changeless center where the past and future are always contemporary with the present. Like you might just find that on a map. <laughs> oh, I was there. You know the you know the changeless center. 
that's where this that's where I was, and then I had this dream. It's cool, and I, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it, I guess, when we get to the end of the, end of this story. But um, it's it's a weird frame story, mm-hmm. and there are two terms in there that I tried to look up. One is Antilia. It says the legends of Antilia and, and Moria. Uh, Antilia does have a Wikipedia, <laughs> and it's a somewhat famous island that people thought existed to the east of Spain and Portugal in, in the Atlantic, mm. um, but of course wasn't there. And there are maps of it. Like if you go to Wikipedia, there are some fun, like weird-looking maps of it. I couldn't figure out what the Moria reference was. Uh, I just think of the yeah, mines had... of Moria, and I get lost. I do, but... This is predates. Oh it, yeah, right? I mean. Yeah, I think it predates. Yeah, I think it does too. It might be something that he just made up. Yeah, it's true. I think this is one of the best opening sentences. It possibly in all of Clark Ash Smithdom, I would have to reread some of the stories, but just the idea that there are these marvelous tales, untold, unwritten, never to be recorded or remembered. Yeah. Like, that they're lost beyond all divining and imagining. Like it's so poetic, and it's so, and it makes you think about how incredibly big the universe is and how we totally wouldn't know. Well, maybe now, hey guys. but yeah. What do you uh what do you think the moon was moon was like in its prime? I think it was a bustling urban center. I think it was a moon of skulls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it probably wasn't, but then everybody died and it became a moon of skulls. And that's why yes. it's white. So he mentions Hotar and Evadon. Yes. In this. Yep. Who who are those? Who are they? What are they? <laughs> who who are those? Uh, So Hotor and Evadon are brothers um, in science as well as consanguinity. Um, (laughs) Which is an awesome word for blood brothers. (laughs) And they live on Poseidonus, which we learn in this story is the last remaining isle of of soon-to-be-entirely-sunken Atlantis. Yeah, so they're science guys. They're science dudes, and they're really good. They're really good at science. Like, they're maybe the best scientists on Poseidonus. When, and I think it's kind of interesting that we have in these two stories two kind of completely different versions of what the source of power on yes. the side is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the last story, of course, it was magic. And in this story, it's quite clearly Atlantean science. Well, he does mention that they learned the arcanic secrets of geology, of chemistry, of biology, and astronomy. So even science is kind of arcane yeah. here in a... And it's, I mean, it's it's talked about, like, there's this passage, too, that, that they had subverted the elements, had constrained yep. the sea, the sun, the air, and the force of gravitation, compelling them to serve the uses of man. And lastly, they had found a way to release the typhonic power of the atom to destroy, transmute, and reconstruct the molecules of matter at will. Which is c- cool in general, but amazing that he's talking about nuclear power. Exactly! Yeah. It's like, it would be cool anyway, but... But the fact that they invented nuclear power and the fact that he published this in 1931, guys, I have a conspiracy now. <laughs> he was on the Manhattan Project. He saw the Manhattan Project when he voyaged and dreamed outside of time and space where the future and the past and the present all come together. Yeah, he wasn't – I think when he dreamed that, he wasn't actually at the Changeless Center. He was, like, just south of the Changeless Center. <laughs> <laughs> there was a little bit of change. <laughs> it's very slow, though. Yeah. And we learn here also that we're in like a specific moment of Poseidonus, mm-hmm. um, that that the people of Poseidonus know that when this generation—that's what it says, right? That this when this generation dies out, Poseidonus will will be gone, basically. Yeah, they've uh, been yeah. able to predict it, it, which is kind of like I don't know that prediction feels strangely magical to me, like it's directly tied to the last of this generation dying. But uh, given the context of the story, it's probably just that they're like, oh, it'll be 
50 years and our island will be gone or something. Right. Yeah. But it's also because they harnessed the power of nature that doomed them. However, by that irony which attends all the triumphs and achievements of man, the progress of the mastering of natural law was coincidental with the profound geological changes. In it. Oh, so well, maybe it wasn't because of, but it's coincidental, yeah. But it is sad. And... Yeah. Um, so these super science brothers, the super bros of science, they worked, the story tells us, for a long time, yep. very hard to try to prevent Poseidonus from sinking. And the people of the island really do view them to be like kind of like science they're science saviors but we also learned that secretly relatively recently they uh, have in fact abandoned all hope of saving the island they're basically they're like this is this is done we can't do anything yeah once they reached middle age they realized that they can't they can't solve it no matter what they do they don't know how to stop it i'll bring up my my problem with all of this later <laughs> Yeah, uh, we Shortly. all have problems. <laughs> so. I have no problem. Oh, really? Okay. Well, I don't have a problem with them I... deciding they can't save it and to abandon it. But uh, So, Tim, what do they do when they decide to abandon it? Well, they move to their jungle laboratory <laughs> and they decide to abandon all efforts to salvage the world and decide to build a, a spaceship to go to Venus. Totally <laughs> the most logical thing when you can split an atom and whatnot. You're like, yeah, I'm going to build me a spaceship. I mean, maybe maybe at the time, Atlantis was the only continent, by the logic of the story, Atlantis was the only continent they could have gone to. Nope. Maybe Because <laughs> when they get out of atmosphere later, they'll totally see all the uh, other yeah. continents. And so it's like, dudes, you could have flown to any other continent. You could have evacuated the people. Like, you're a seafaring race. You seem to have ports and boats and, and, and crap. Let's talk about why they choose Savannah Moe. Because of its name. Because they were trying to screw us up for this podcast. <laughs> or, or what, what do you think? They, why do you? They they say they pick it because like they viewed all of the heavenly bodies and they've decided that based on their like scientific measurements that Venus is the closest to Earth and that therefore not closest physically but closest in terms of like oxygen and gravity and stuff and that it's their best bet to go and live there. I, I guess which is cool. Like I love how science focused this story is. <laughs> I just think of Barsoom basically. I just think of how weird it is that. Edgar Rice Burroughs came up with this like alternate name for Mars and then I mean clearly not just Clark Ashton Smith but I think everybody just kind of ripped that and was like oh we're going to rename all these planets to like weird <laughs> nonsense names and so we have Safana Moe. Uh so they're going to go to Venus and to do that they need to build themselves a vehicle a rocket ship basically more or less to get themselves to Venus. Day by day the brothers toiled to perfect their invention and night by night through the ranging seasons, they peered at the lustrous orb of their speculations as it hung in the emerald evening of Poseidonus, or above the violet-shrouded heights that would soon take the saffron footprints of the dawn, and ever they gave themselves to bolder imaginings, to stranger and more perilous projects. The vehicle they were building was designed with the complete foreknowledge of all problems to be faced. Various types of air vessels had been used in Atlantis for epics, but they knew that none of these would be suitable for their purpose even in a modified form. The vehicle they finally devised was a perfect sphere, like a miniature moon, since, as they argued, all bodies traveling through etheric space were of this shape. It was made with double walls of a metallic alloy whose secret they themselves had discovered, 
an alloy that was both light and tough beyond any substance classified by chemistry or mineralogy. There were a dozen small round windows lined with an unbreakable glass and a door of the same alloy as the walls that could be shut with hermetic tightness. The explosion of atoms in sealed cylinders was to furnish the propulsive and levitative powers and would also serve to heat the sphere's interior against the absolute cold of space. Solidified air was to be carried in electrum canisters and vaporized at the rate which would maintain a respirable atmosphere. And foreseeing that the gravitational influence of the Earth would lessen and cease as they went further and further away from it, they had established in the floor of the sphere a magnetic zone that would simulate the effects of gravity and thus obviate any bodily danger or discomfort to which they would might otherwise be liable. I just refuse to believe this was printed in 1931. Yeah. I know, it's crazy. And I guess I, I don't even know what to say about it. It's so strange to me that this, like, it's almost, like, it's almost like, like a weird burst of hard sci-fi in the middle of this crazy story about yeah. dying Atlantis, written by the same man who, who he just read 10 stories set in, like, a completely ridiculous version mm -hmm. of medieval France. Like, yeah. it's so... Um, varied i can't even like really wrap my head around it especially that it that it even like it even talks about basically like magnetic boots like to stimulate gravity yeah. is amazing and solidified air and canisters yeah, That's yeah, yeah crazy exactly. and the atomic power works both for heat and for force yeah yeah it's well thought out all right so. well, let's just go back to how clark ashton smith invented nasa yes he did um, which is my summation of that passage. he totally did did he know jack parsons at all i was just thinking that that's a, yeah. really, that's a really good question i do not know because if he did this is something we should research or at least ask listeners do any of you know did clark ashton smith know jack parsons yeah we need to know for science Okay, so these brothers, these the science brothers, have built their spherical spaceship. But they didn't build it alone, did they, Tim? No, they didn't. They have... Uh, wait, I want to get this right, so give me a second. These labors were carried on with no other assistance than that of a few slaves, members of an aboriginal race of Atlantis, who had no conception of the purpose for which the vessel was being built, and who, to ensure their complete discretion, were deaf mutes. <laughs> so they've got they've got a, a passel of of deaf mute aborigines who are helping them build this. I firmly believe that they muted and deafed those slaves themselves. Uh, see, I think well, I think it's possible that they bought them at a slave market where this had been done to them. Here, buy your discreet slaves today. But I'm hoping that there's just like a special market for people who happen to be it, it's it, whatever it is it's not good i like that you hope for a more specialized diversified <laughs> slave market on land. <laughs> not necessarily a kinder gentler more just one you just want it if you're shopping for a slave you want to know where to go i stick by the idea that these brothers are kind of Oh, they are uh, well they're hiding it from the population yeah yeah number one they decide to build an escape project on their own without telling everybody else that yeah your your land is doomed and number two slave labor so yeah but they're cold scientists this is they've true. never pretended to be anything else <laughs> 
Which makes slavery uh, totally okay. Also, they never they never bothered to get married or anything, so they really aren't attached to anybody except probably each other. Yeah, they knew that this was going to happen, so they made sure to disassociate from humanity. And all the people in Poseidonus are just happy thinking, oh, they're up doing intensive research. I mean, they're not exactly happy, but you know, they feel confident. Uh, so after years of work, like it takes them almost until they're old men, right? Um, I finish it. I think that they're they're middle aged when they finish it, but then they become old men during the travel. Oh yeah, yeah. It says we're now men of middle years. Yeah. Uh, so after they've built the sphere, they have to stock it. So they make it full of books and art and food and general supplies. And I, I do love this idea that they they filled it full of books and stuff so they can read and look at art and. And so they're ready for the journey. How big do you think this thing is? Because in my in like when I originally read the description of the ship, I thought it was like basically like a, like the size of a modern era like deep sea submersible. Right, like one room. Yeah, and it sounds like it's maybe like the size of a house or something. I would hope it would be house sized. Yeah, like it's it's got levels and floors, like a nice study in one in one section. I mean, they have to live in it for lustrums and then decades. I looked lustrums up. It's five years. Yeah, I did too. I was like, lustra? Oh, okay, five years. So I like this passage and that it comes right after they've sort of loaded their ship up. And it says, the brothers mourn the inevitable passing of their civilization with all its epic garnered lore, its material and artistic wealth, its consummate refinement. But they had learned the universality of the laws whose operation was plunging Atlantis beneath the wave, the laws of change, of increase and decay. And they had schooled themselves to a philosophic resignation a resignation, which mayhap, was not untempered by a foresight of the singular glory and novel unique experiences that would be entailed by their flight upon hitherto untraveled space. So they're like kind of sad, but yeah. then they're also totally Man, everything we know is going to be destroyed, but we're going to Venus. <laughs> and then they high five. And then they get on their ship. And I love that, like, the idea of the singular glory, I think, is fascinating to me because it's not, um, it's like just the glory between bros. They're yes. just going to get up there and high five, yep. which, P.S., is kind of what they do. Yeah. Like, they're not <laughs> They're not doing it for any, because their civilization is going to be gone. You know, yeah. There's no, like, they're not going to be superstars. They're right. just no. going to go up there and, like, they're feel the glory. They're not bringing a woman or women up. Nope. Nope. No. <laughs> They, they, just, they're gonna go up to venus to die which is just so weird too like they, they didn't say okay we're gonna start a new colony even like, no even kidnap a bunch of people <laughs> i can't quite blame them and going to space is kind of awesome and they have windows i love that they have these windows these might be the two weirdest characters of clark ashton smith <laughs> they're just so strange so they blast off and they it takes them years of travel to get to to Venus and they watch as as they lift off from Earth and they watch as Poseidonus sinks. And I wonder um, if their atomic reaction kind of pushed it under. I don't know that it yeah. did. Oh, but there was a really, really good line as they're flying over Poseidonus, how they couldn't hear the revels and the strident right. merrymaking. And it describes nightly revels were held and the very fountains ran with wine that the people might forget the predicted doom. Oh, that's awesome. Such a fantastic fiction right there. I wonder what vintage that wine was. Dun 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 dun. <laughs> this has been foreshadowing with Tim Mucci. <laughs> so yeah, years. 
takes them a long time. As they're blasting off and as they're looking down at the earth, they're they're pointing out and they're naming, oh, that's where Atlantis used to be. Oh, this is that other continent. Oh, this is where that other continent. This is where all the other land on this planet is. Which brings me back <laughs> to my these, point. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Go, so I think go you ahead. guys should make, make this point that you were making. Like, yeah. let's, let's just go lay ahead. it out. Make let's, the point, Ruth. It's needlessly complicated. And there are clearly lots and lots of other continents which they could evacuate to. In fact, right. they could evacuate all of Poseidon. At least by the time they figure out, okay, yeah, this is a totally lost cause. Let's build a bunch of smaller airships that don't have to deal with space and get yeah. everybody off. Or let's build yeah. boats. They even say they, they've had airship technology for epics. Yeah. And they can't go to another continent? My only My only way to reason this out is that I guess I can only call it national pride. Like it's so strong that they can't even conceive of living on another body of land because that's not them. Poseidonians live in Poseidonis. They don't live in these other continents. Well, maybe they should become Averonians. Yeah. Well, I'd love to try to ferret out a character logic that ties it back to to them actually being quite egotistical about their own abilities. Right. But I don't know. I feel like I would be stretching to find that in the text without really mm-hmm. finding it because it would be equally egotistical to save all of Poseidonus, like proving their science worth by like levitating everybody to nearby America or Europe or something, you know? I guess I don't I don't just fault them though, because I'm assuming that and maybe it's yeah. a faulty assumption, but I'm assuming that everybody on this on Poseidonus knows that there's other continents out there. And they right. come from yeah. generations of scientists. So. Yeah, or that they could build cities under the sea. I don't know. <laughs> Let's go on with the story. So there's they, a lot of options. Yeah, there are. <laughs> that, that we're but not taking that they don't choose. So they land. Uh, so well. So they don't. No, they don't land. They first. arrive. <laughs> they, they arrive. This is a very important point. For oh yeah, this yeah. is very important. <laughs> All right, so lead, ease yourself into it, Phil. Don't so, rush it. Years. <laughs> I'm sorry, now you're making me laugh. Years <laughs> they travel to Sphanimoe, a.k.a. Venus, and they finally reach the Venusian orbit. And then there's this passage that says, though they were childishly eager to set foot on the new planet, they sagely decided to continue their journey on a horizontal level till they could study its topography with some measure of care and precision. I just want to point this out. That this story was written in 1930, 1931-ish, and that moment is much truer to how a scientist would think and act than anything in the movie Prometheus, <laughs> which I hated. And therefore, Clark Ashton Smith, as if we needed more proof, is a much better writer than Damon Lindelof. No, I really do like this, that they are good scientists. He- They're not, you know, they didn't get up there to just instantly die foreshadowing <laughs> yeah he he proves he proves he's a sci-fi writer as well as a fantasy yes yeah for an sure an fantasy writer but also pretty good at sci-fi at length they made up their minds to descend though they were old old men with five foot ermine beards they brought the moon-shaped vessel down with all the skill of which they had been capable in their prime and opening the door that had been sealed for decades they emerged in turn Hotar preceding Evadon, since he was a little older. Their first impressions were of a torrid heat, of dazzling color and overwhelming perfume. There seemed to be a million odors in the heavy, strange, unstirring air. Odors that were almost visible in the form of wreathing vapors. Perfumes that were like elixirs and opiates, 
that conferred at the same time a blissful drowsiness and a divine exhilaration. Then they saw that there were flowers everywhere, that they had descended in a wilderness of blossoms. They were all of unearthly form, with scrolls and vultures of petals many-hued, that seemed to curl and twist with a more than vegetable animation or sentiency. They grew from the ground that their overlapping stems and calyxes had utterly concealed. They hung from the boles and fronds of palm-like trees. They thronged the water of still pools. They poised on the jungle tops like living creatures winged for flight. And even as the brothers watched, the flowers grew and faded with a thaumatologic swiftness. They fell and replaced each other as if by some later demand of natural law. Hotar and Evadon were delighted. They called out to each other like children. They pointed at each new floral marvel that was more exquisite and curious than the rest. I like to imagine that that first high five on Venus just echoed for miles. Yeah, totally. Like, yeah, bro, we made it. <laughs> high five. <laughs> and the ocean of flowers rippled as their, their hands clasped together. I love this thought of them just bounding through to through the through the meadows and frolicking the story goes on to like like it does describe them as giggling right i mean mm. they become like drunk with their accomplishment which is one thing to note about this stuff the other thing is to, to note is just how weird this description of venus is it is like the idea of venus being under a bunch of clouds and possibly being a very humid and plant like planet like other people had yeah had written about very venus being very plant like because we couldn't see it and we could assume maybe it was precipitation and, and moisture in the air. Um, and they get they get so excited about what they've done that they forget. Like the story makes a point of saying that they forget their journey, they forget Poseidonus, they forget Atlantis. They're really into what they're doing, uh, which is kind of like this moment actually reminds me a little bit of stuff that happens in Averone, where you know characters enter, you know, like a new area for them, and they become in some sense intoxicated by it and begin to forget, you know, where they came from and those kind of things. It feels like like a Averonian beat, although he I probably hadn't written most of the Averone stories at this point, but like there's a similar idea there that you you enter a, like a magical strange realm and, and it affects your mind in some intoxicating way. Mm-hmm. So the and they they kind of, they don't really roll in the flowers <laughs> pollen, but it gets everywhere. Like the pollen from these things gets in their beards and their hair and everywhere. And there's even animals there. There's a, where it's is a it? Rabbit. And they laugh. Uh, it's, I don't know what it is. I pictured it as like a, um, kind of like some weird cow thing. <laughs> is it, can you want to, do, do you want to read the passage where it describes it? Yeah. Uh, and they laughed at the unexampled bizarrery of the site when they perceived certain animals new to zoology who were trotting about on more than the usual number of legs with orchidaceous blossoms springing from their rumps. So it's like animals with plants growing off of them, flowers growing off of them, orchid-like blooms growing off of them. And the plants are all growing and dying. The, f- the flowers are growing and dying and growing and dying. Where do you think, I mean, I, I don't know, like... I don't know my genre history well enough. Where do you what do you think the precedent for this imagery for other planets is? It makes me think of a funky Eden. Eden being full of flowers and life and growth, but it's weird. It's like Eden gone weird. There might be something that I'm just not familiar with. Like maybe mm-hmm. like um 
uh, you mentioned uh, Barsoom, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Maybe there was a hole. And I know that there were other stories of, you know, Earth people visiting planets within our solar systems. Um, I think Michael Caine of Mars was an earlier one. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But there might be a whole uh, series of, of books that we're just not aware of, of like this kind of stuff. So who yeah. knows? Or it could just be his own crazy little Auburn Californian brain. Yeah, I know. I mean, that, that's sort of my question is like, yeah. what, what was his, or what was, or did he have a jumping off point for envisioning it this way? Yeah. Cause he's uh, not like Lovecraft who really studied the science behind things. He was, he was the poet. Yeah. Although clearly he, he had some idea of what was going on, but yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so they get this, this, flower pollen and substance all over them. Suddenly, Hotar cried out with a new wonder and laughed with a more boisterous mirth than before. He had seen that an oddly folded leaf was starting from the back of his shrunken right hand. The leaf unfurled as it grew. It disclosed the flower bud, and lo, the bud opened and became a triple chalice blossom of unearthly hues. Then on his left hand another blossom appeared in like manner and the leaves and petals were burgeoning from his wrinkled face and brow, were growing from his limbs and body, were mingling their hair-like tendrils and tongue-shaped pistols with his beard. He felt no pain, only an infantile surprise and bewilderment. Now from the hands and limbs of Evadon the blossoms also began to spring, and soon the two old men were hardly to be distinguished from the garland-laden trees about them, and they died with no agony, as if they were already part of the teeming flora life of Sanamoe, with such perceptions and sensations as were appropriate to their new mode of existence. And before long, every fiber of their bodies had undergone a dissolution into flowers, and the vessel in which they had made their voyage was embowered from sight in an ever-climbing mass of plants and blossoms. Such was the fate of Hotar and Evadon, the last of the Atlanteans, and the first, if not also the last, of human visitors to Sifanamoe. Dun, dun, dun. I kind of like that ending. I, I like the idea that if I were an old person and had fulfilled my missions and stuff in life, that I would happily turn into a flower. Somehow I'm really okay with that. That's what I think is really weird about this story, is that it, like, my question is, like, what genre do you even call oh. the story? I, like, it's it's almost, like, it's completely untamed by notion of a genre. We might call it science fiction, but it's not. We might call it like fantasy or historical fantasy but it's really not and then it's also like and this ending is just so weird like if this story were written i think today in our modern sort of modern views of genre like that ending feels to me like a horror ending mm -hmm. right but totally the description of it is specifically not a horror ending i don't i mean i don't yeah i think if even if other writers at the time wrote it if, like if lovecraft tackled something oh, yeah. like this it would have been uh, strictly horror but so what do you call it? Like what? I like, don't know. What is well, this ending? it's weird. It's weird fiction. Yeah, it, it is yeah. definitely weird. They're totally, they're totally into it. They're like laughing as they're turning into plants, and we don't know if it's because they're just excited at their accomplishment, or it's the maybe they're drugged from the um, from the pollen. Maybe this is the defense mechanism of the planet. Like any biological things that come here, think it's awesome to turn into plants. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they they have a great time, and then specifically it says they die. Yeah, they die, yeah. and every fiber of them gets turned into flowers. I love 
love it. Yeah. What a totally out of the blue way for an entire race to die. Yeah. Like, like, like those are the last two Atlanteans that ever lived. Yep. And they turned into flowers on Venus. On Venus. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty I great. Think, I think this is maybe the first... And in a previous episode, we talked a little bit about how aggressively anti-realist Clark Ashton Smith right. gets. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is probably our first example of him just just refusing to ground the story. Right. Yeah. He's just like, totally. uh, screw you, they turn flowers <laughs> and they laugh while they do it. The end. <laughs> CIS out. <laughs> he drops his pen. Goes outside, lies under the stars, carves some dinosaur bones. Amazing. Um, well, the frame story thing. Wow. So I had other questions that were actually about the story. Oh, just that it doesn't close and that, that the narrator is, I mean, once again, like it's kind of like the, the same everyone question. Like, is this actually a dream that Clark Ashton Smith had? Like, is that narrator <laughs> Clark Ashton Smith? Because Like turning into flowers. It, like some of this stuff does legitimately feel weird enough to have just been ripped from a dream he actually had from the changeless place in the middle of the circle. And I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's such a weird, it's weird that the frame, the narrator doesn't come back. I like the little hint that it said, if not also the last, where you, okay, are they the last? Were they the last? What happened next? Is this a warning not to go to Venus? Is this like, um, like at the mountains of madness where he's only telling right. the story because like, who knows guys, you can't go back down to Antarctica. Fine. I'll tell you the story. Like dudes, this is what happens when you go to Venus. So keep an eye out. He could have easily started it just, you know, this yeah. is a, this is a tale of Atlantis that has That's never been told. Say. Like, yeah. Or you don't even like, it, it doesn't, nothing about it. I think really like mm-hmm. really requires that it begin with this incredibly poetic frame device. Yeah, I mean, I love that it's there, but it's so the story could very easily have just started. You know? Maybe it's to prepare us for just how strange it's going to be. Like, yeah. uh, like Ruth and I were saying, we had huge problems with why they couldn't just pick up and move to another continent or use their science to save them mm-hmm. in another way. This beginning kind of says, don't expect a lot of logic out of it. This yeah. is a dream I mean, story. You know? there, yeah, there is a kind of dream logic to, that, yeah. to exactly those logical inconsistencies that they yeah. were just go yeah it feels very dreamlike it's Um, it's fantastic with the ph what uh what do you guys how do you envision now that we're two atlantis stories in and there's only five total how do you envision atlantis like this 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 version of atlantis like what is it how does it feel to you tim emotionally (laughs) um it feels very i don't know it, it doesn't feel as fantastic as i'd like it to be even though there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. But just the fact that... Yeah, it feels like a very settled place. It's not like Avaron where random stuff is just happening all the time. It's It feels like a city. Like they have ports and they have airships. And it's very schizophrenic, I guess. Or I want to say dichotic, but I don't know if that's a word. There's a dichotomy because then there's you've got the wizard Malagris who lives up in his cone tower, and then you have these the science brothers who are you know, researching ways to save the planet, and then everybody's drinking, and they're port cities, and people are selling slaves, and there's domed cities, and yeah, um, it's it's an interesting place, and I, I, I it's it'll be interesting to learn more about it as we go. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel the same way. I feel almost. I mean, it'll be easier just to make these sort of grander cases about Poseidon when we've been through all the stories. But even in these first two, it feels a little bit like he doesn't 
key being Clark Ashton Smith doesn't quite know how to use it. Yeah. Which, which if you then try to like make the stories into a coherent whole, I think makes them feel very interesting because they sort of feel like it's really weird that specifically Malagos yeah. and Hotar and Evadon live not even on the same continent. Like, I don't think Poseidonus is that big. Like, they live like, yeah, yeah. No, in it's the not. same neighborhood as uh-huh. what was Atlantis. It's very strange. We um, should actually post them because there's a map. We should post the map on the, the website so you can see just how close Susran, where uh, Malagos's tower is, and um, um, Lafara. They had retired from Lafara to a private observatory, but they were working in Lafara. Lafara. It also feels a little bit, and again, it'll be easier to make this case later, like like that these Poseidonist stories mm-hmm. are very much a proto-Zothik. Like he hadn't quite, he, like he's obviously obsessed with a with a dying, the idea of a dying right. land, um, but he hadn't quite made the logical jump to like a dying earth. So yeah. he's like um, just sort of yeah. working in this weird proto-Zothik. That being said, I've loved both of these first Poseidonist stories. I thought right. they were great. And I love the idea of thinking of them happening in the same place. Yes. It's kind of amazing. But there's also, he also I, I mentions uh, Hyperborea here. Oh, yeah, he does, yeah. Mainly noting that Hyperborea comes before. before. Yeah. yeah, so as we go to Hyperborea, we're going, we're predating Poseidonus. Yes. That's it. Um, I don't know if I have anything else to say about this story. Do you guys yeah. have anything else? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah, so did I. Despite it, its logical weirdness, it had a a very interesting yeah. playfulness about it that mm-hmm. made it. It makes it really hard to dislike. It's so well written. I think that's yeah. why. I mean, hopefully everybody will have read it before going through this. But I really can't describe how strange it is to stumble on, uh, like specifically nuclear power and nuclear engines in this story. Like it just kind of comes totally out of the blue. <laughs> I guess not, not out of the blue in the sense that, like, it's a, it is a story about scientists, but, like, out of the blue, mm-hmm. given what I would expect a 1930s story to have in it about science. Like, I was right. not expecting it to go nuclear at all. <laughs> well, especially after reading all of the Averone stuff and then Last Incantation, which there was, there was no science to be found in any of those. Only the science of regret. Next week, we'll be doing the episode you've all been waiting for. The Double Shadow it, does. The Double Shadow. I'm doing a little dance in my chair. Oh, I can't wait. Also, I think you know? that they would be the higher priced slaves. I mean, in some ways, because you'd be the, the gentleman looking for discretion. They'll never tell your wife about the woman you brought home last night, unless, you know, they can write or generally make signs like, you know, gesticulate boobs and thrusting. And Wow. Okay, okay, okay. okay. 